Well, hey, this morning, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, This morning, we're wrapping up our Advent series together as we also kind of wrap up this year. And when people have asked me about this series and what I'm teaching on this week, they've, they've commented that it kind of seems odd that you would still do Advent after Christmas as we're concluding our Advent series But really, it's not that strange when you understand what Advent means, especially in light of Scripture and Christ. See, Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And so this morning, what we are talking about is Jesus' second Advent, that the King has come, that he has taken on flesh and dwelt among us, that he has defeated death on the cross, and that he has brought true life to mankind, and also in that, that he will come again. And so this morning, as we wrap up our Advent series, this is our subject, the return of our Savior, that we should be in preparation for his return. And really, through this series, Jesus has been the true focus. In fact, if you don't know this, if this is your first time here, that is the subject of all of our teaching here at CTK. And what I was really trying to do in this series is really try to fix our focus on the Savior, that everything else would flow out of that. Because within this season, With all of the lights and all of the food and all the family and all the gifts and the chaos, what really tends to get lost is who Jesus really is. In the midst of the fleeting things that fail to save us and fail to fill us, God comes in the flesh and he fulfills his promise. And so the thing that we have focused on in this series over the last three weeks has been to look rightly at God's promises and who Jesus is. And so just if if this is your first time or you've forgotten in this series, what we've really looked at the last three weeks is a focus on certain aspects of our Savior. The the first week of our series, we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and the promise for a Savior. We saw God's response in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and caused separation between them and God, between us and God. And in this, we saw that although humanity was then filled with darkness and depravity, and what we actually deserved in that was God's wrath, he displayed his mercy. He displayed his mercy through his promise to send a Savior, a great light, our Savior. And then we looked at the waiting of our Savior. We looked at the life of of Simeon and how he was faithful to wait for the Savior to come. And that he did not see death until he first met Jesus. And he did. He met Jesus and got to see God in the flesh here to save and to redeem. And what we learned in this was that when we wait upon God and we seek him, In his spirit, he leads us into where we meet with him. And then on Christmas Eve last weekend, we talked about the arrival of our Savior. We looked at how God took on flesh and dwelt among us. That the word became flesh and through his authority, we have life 
and light. And really, my goal last weekend was to point you towards focusing rightly on Jesus and looking to him as your Lord and your Savior. And so what I said to do was that we needed to understand who he is and what he has done for us. And so again and again and again, we talked about Jesus. And so now today, we're going to talk about the return of Jesus, about his second coming. But see, as we do this, one thing that all of us have in common is how we are so divided on the details of Jesus' second coming and what comes after that. See, for some of us, we, we have an experience or a story that really clouds our view or our understanding. And unfortunately, because of this, we view this subject with fear and anxiety because it has not been actually communicated to us rightly with the beauty and the passion and the urgency and the ferociousness that the Bible so clearly lays before us. And see, then there's some of us that really nerd out on eschatology. We really nerd out on the study of the end times, but it's not a biblical view. It's all of the ideas and all the eschatological views and the arguments of how rather than the importance of why. So really for you, if you're in this category, your view then dominates relationship and time and it is not complete. But see, then there are some of you who have looked and you have studied and you have deeply examined the scriptures. And now, out of that study, that has really influenced your view of God, of Jesus, and humanity in a way that really produces an urgency and a passion for people to know and understand Christ's coming. And here's what I know of of those of you in the room that are faithful to study these truths. There's two things that I know this morning that I want you to understand, and I want you to be in on on this with me as we look at this text. One, you're not going to feel like I get into this subject enough. And I get that. But you need to understand that this is a reminder, not an in-depth study of everything. So give some grace. And two... I know that you feel disappointed with your complacent Christian brothers and sisters. And I want you to understand, you're right in the way that you feel. Because all of us need to have a deep love and the same urgency as the early New Testament Christians when they thought Christ was coming back the next day or the next week or the next month. But it wasn't some far off thing that we could just sit around and wait, but that we needed to work in our waiting. And see, still, I believe that this kind of thinking and this kind of living points back to our focus and how we view and how we understand who Jesus is. And so before we dive into the text of 2 Peter 3, I just want to direct us all towards seeing Jesus rightly in his return Because I think what this season tends to do is to get us to think in a way that is not actually compatible with Scripture. And see, this is not an error of the Bible, but an error of this Christianese, kind of more cultural Christmas view 
that really lacks a deep understanding of our returning king. And so what I want to do is just take a moment to look at our king rightly in his return as we see in Revelation chapter 19. We see in Revelation 9, chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, what John is seeing before him as a vision of the coming of Christ when he returns. And here's what he says rightly about our Savior. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, now let me tell you, from this, what is so incredibly clear about us and about our thinking is we're a long way off from cuddly little six-pound, seven-ounce baby Jesus, okay? (laughs) What we see in the text is that Jesus is on a white horse. His eyes are like flames of fire with blood-dripped robe, with a sword coming to bring God's wrath and justice, saying he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, And so let me tell you something that if you don't really know who Jesus is, you don't like ferocious Jesus. You want cuddly Jesus. You want little baby Jesus in the manger last week, Jesus. But the reality is you cannot separate baby Jesus from ferocious second coming Jesus. Because if you do that, then you do not really know who he is. Because they are not separated. And his coming is the truth and the completion of God's promise. In fact, for you, Christmas morning was probably a a perfect illustration of all of that, of what it will be like on the day when Jesus comes again. Because Christmas morning has a a tendency to bring a lot of promises that are tied to it, right? I mean, family and friends were together with Christmas cheer and joy. You got what you wanted, and all your dreams came true. For some of you, there was this type of, of joy and, and this jolly feeling. But in reality, if there was any of that, it's only for a few moments. And then it gives way. And really what we find is that it's a shadow of something that is coming but is not here yet. And so it's important, church, for us to remember and to know rightly and to seek our Savior who will come again. And so this morning, as we look to do that, as we look to see who Jesus is and see his second coming and how we should live in light of that, what we're going to really see and unpack from our text this morning is that we need to remember God's promises to rightly see Christ's second coming 
and live as people of holiness and godliness. If you're taking notes this morning, those are your fill in the blanks as we go to read 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, this is Peter's second letter to the church. And as he concludes this letter, he tells us that we read from verse 1 that his purpose in his writing was to stir up the church's sincere mind by way of reminder. And in verse 1, he says that they should remember. So let me tell you, church, it's important for us to remember And Peter knew the importance of reminding his readers of the scriptural message to really look to the word, really look back to what was said through the prophets and what was being said now in his time through the apostles. And see, really for us, there are two things, or I would say two reasons why we need to work to remember. And the first is that our default thinking is not remembering. For example, most likely, and I'm not saying all of you, but most likely when you got up this morning, you did not first put your feet on the ground and audibly say, praise God for another day and another opportunity. You probably didn't open your fridge and look at the elements and go to make toast and say, thank you, God, for your provision. And you probably didn't get into your car this morning, stop, and as it started, thank God God, you are good. 
And I am grateful that you have given me a car that runs. Most likely, most of us did not do this. And the reason is because what we naturally have a tendency to default to is entitlement. I set my alarm. I take breath freely. I bought those groceries. I made that food. I bought my car and I've worked on it. I've worked for it. But see, ultimately, all of these things really point to God, to the beauty of his common grace before us. And so really, we need to work to remember. And so this is why in the preaching of the word at times on a Sunday morning, especially when I have such a lengthy text like today at the beginning of our time, I'll just say we need to get to work. We've got to go after it because putting our focus on the Savior is where we seek to remember and to reflect on God's promises through him. And so to do this, we look to the word. And so we need to remember what has been told to us through, as Peter would say, the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. And see, what is important for us to remember is that one of the purposes of Scripture is to remind us of the faithfulness of God and to tune our hearts to the reality that Christ is coming again. This is really the heartbeat of all of Scripture, that the entire Bible, all 66 books, tell one story. If you didn't know that, it's just one story in all of Scripture. It's not 66 different stories. And in this, the Bible walks in this amazing unity. That from Genesis to Revelation, it tells one story of God redeeming mankind from the brokenness of sin and death through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so church, let me tell you how important this is for us to remember that we would dig into the word of God, that we would be a people that consume it and press into it, that we would be submitted to it and that we would long for it. And I don't just mean that that couple minutes a day where we read that profound verse on the app on our phone, but I mean desiring it in such a way that's greater than our Starbucks mocha latte or our show that we're binging on Netflix or anything else in your life that currently takes your affection and your desire. That ultimately, we would long for the word greater than our own comfort. See, what I believe is that we need to go after the word like the German reformer Martin Luther when he read the book of Romans. And in reading the book of Romans, he, he said of his time, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat continually upon Paul at that place, most passionately desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. That's how you read the Bible. See, here what, what Luther is saying is, I don't get it, so I'm going to dig in. I, I, I don't understand it yet, so I'm going to study. I'm going to work, and I'm going to fight to understand. So church, we need to work to remember. And the first way that we do that is by taking in the word, remembering all things of and in our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
that we would remember the promises of God. And then also that the second way that we need to work to remember is that we need to be aware that others are going to try to mock and argue and get us to not remember. That we see picking up in verse 3 that there will be hostility towards those of us who believe in Christ's return. Peter tells us this. He says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So see, when Peter talks about scoffers, he's referring to people disputing the truth of Jesus' return. So church, this is why it is so important that we remember, that we remember the promises of God, that we remember how faithful he has been in these promises, and that we remember that one of those promises is his return. See, that's important because there will be plenty of scoffers. There will be plenty of mockers and those who belittle and mock what you believe. And what is said about them in the text is even relevant and true today. That in verse 3, Peter tells us that they will follow their own sinful desires. So the scoffers and the mockers Really what they do in their own sinful desires is they point to the fact that Christ has not yet come. So this is their evidence of the understanding of the world. And so they trust in what they see. And because they have not yet seen Christ's return, they mock and they follow their own desires, their own sin rather than the Savior. And then also Peter tells us, in verse 5, that they deliberately overlook. So they only see today, and they only are concerned with today. They only see today, and they're only concerned with today. And so this is why, church, we need to remember, because although we are in the right now, tomorrow isn't promised. Although we are in here right now, tomorrow is not promised. And what tends to happen for us in this is that really we get into this routine where one day feels like the next day feels like the next day feels like the next day. I mean, earlier this morning when I went to grab a coffee from Morgan's, I I, uh, spoke with the barista in that, you know, the question always comes up, what are you doing for New Year's? And as we're both, you know, getting into more of adulthood and the conversation was like, yeah, I'm not staying up past midnight. I got stuff to do. I got stuff to do the next day. I can't be tired. And we're already planning the next day and the next day, but it all just kind of blends together. And so if I'm honest, I would say my confession would be that I feel like my days just often melt from, the, from one to the other consistently. And sometimes I lose sight of what I need to actually remember. I mean, think about it. Christmas already came. That's crazy to think about in 2017. Tomorrow is a new year. Literally, tomorrow, 2017 is gone. It is a thing of the past. And in this, honestly, I don't always feel like I'm really focused on his return like I should be. I think sometimes we just have this tendency, because of time and our restriction within it, to just get so caught up in the wrong thing. But, but see, still, when Jesus returns, it's going to be like every other day. This is why we need to remember. 
I mean, Jesus said in his own teaching that when he comes, it will look like another day we know about. In Matthew 24, in verse 37 and 38, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So how is the second coming going to occur? It's going to occur like the days of Noah. It's just going to be like every other day, and he is going to show up, and still people will be chasing sin over Savior. And so let me tell you, church, we will often be surrounded by scoffers and mockers saying, I don't care what you remember. It's the, it's the same thing. It's the same day on to the next day on to the next day. And let me tell you, in this, you will be despised. In ways, you will be rejected. In some cases, some of you will be persecuted and you will be mocked for what you believe. And yet what is so important is that we remember the promises of God. And so let me tell you, this is why we have a high priest who understands, who resonates with us, who understands those things and yet is faithful. And so we look to him, and especially as we look rightly to his second coming. But see, I think for us, whenever we read passages like this and we look at eschatology, the question always comes up, but why has he not come already? I think that's a longing in all of our hearts. And if you don't believe that, go and find all of the people who are already trying to predict when he's coming. Because the question always comes up for people, why has he not come already? And see, Peter resolves this for us. He answers this for us in verse 8 and 9. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, in this text are really two things that are important, but they're difficult. And the first is time and the second is repentance. See, as we look at the first, which is time, we run into the fact that you and I are finite. We are restricted. We operate inside of time, and we are defined by it for the most part. I mean, everything then is either in our life a plan or a reference to time in how we operate within it, right? So the questions that are probably going to come up after a service and are going to come up in the conversations is what time did you get up this morning? What time are we having lunch today? What time are you coming over? What time is kickoff? There's all of these questions for us that are related to time because you and I, for the most part, are defined by time and we are restricted in that. But see, this is not true of God. God is outside of time so that the present and the future aren't just things that he knows about. They are places that he is. So past, present, and future are definitions for you and me, but for God, it's just a place that he is. So why has he not come already? 
Why does he wait? Well, the text is clear. It's not because he's slow. The answer is that he is waiting patiently for us. God has literally restrained his wrath because he has patience towards us. And what he is longing for us to do is come to repentance, that he is not being slow, but that he has a plan to rescue and to ransom men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. But it's important for us to understand that in God's perfect gospel plan, Jesus does not die on the cross for people who might believe, but for those who will. See, the gospel is being spread all over the world in this. And and in this, he is rescuing and he is ransoming and he is calling people to himself. I mean, think about this for a moment, that in little Cedra Woolley, Jesus has rescued, he has ransomed, and he alone continues to call people to himself. So this is why God is so patient in waiting and holding back his wrath. It's that he's calling us to repentance. And so let me tell you, there is this unbelievable invitation on the table. This morning, there is an incredible invitation on the table that we would believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we would repent and remember That's what's on the table. It's an invitation to the Father. So let me tell you what the scoffers and the mockers may say. God is not cruel. He is merciful. Look how long he has been holding out. So see, there is a serious offer on the table, but there is also a serious urgency. So what that means is that if you are someone who has not placed their faith and their hope, and their entire life in Christ alone, then you need to understand this urgency and this invitation. See, when we hear how God is holding out or or restraining his own wrath, we, we tend to play the fence if we're not living in faith. But we kind of have the tendency to live according to maybe, but not now. Sometime if things change, right? If things get bad enough, I'll go after Jesus. But let me remind you, you are not the author of time. You are not the author of time. You do not hold the cosmos in your hand, and you are not sovereign over anything. Because remember, as I've told you before, you make a crummy God. See, what Peter continues to tell us in in verse 10 is that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. So what that means is that you don't have an awareness of it like the Father does. And he says, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So basically what this means is that the day is going to come, and if you are not living in light of that truth, if you have not trusted and placed your faith and your entire life in Christ, you are not rightly going to see Christ's second coming, and you are definitely not going to stand on the side of relationship in it. 
In fact, if you are living in an opposition to the Savior, then what verse 10 says is actually quite frightening. It's that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So really consider, think about this. How are you living? And think also about the incredible invitation. Because this is not a, a scare tactic. It's not, it's not a get you to behave better. But it's the truth that by knowing and believing in the truth of the gospel, you may know and behold Christ. So see, this is one of the most life-changing truths. That a holy God who could have nothing to do with sinful and broken people stepped down into the brokenness of this world. He took on flesh and he alone also took on sin and death. So that by faith in Christ alone, we would have life. So because of the life that we receive in Christ, the life we now live as we await his return is one that is marked by holiness and godliness. Not that we can be better, but so that we can be more and more and more like the one who saved us. So see, we are not just called to remember, but the way that we live should be marked by the Savior who saved us and the Savior that we serve. And so in light of this, Peter asks an important question towards the end of the text. In verse 11, he asks, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people ought you to be? See, I think what's so scary to me is that, as, especially as a parent, we have such a tendency to think of how our kids ought to be. As bosses, as employers, we have a tendency to think how our, employee, how our employees, how our workers should be. But how often do we apply the question to ourselves and really allow with freedom the Holy Spirit to convict and to guide? Where we're asking that of ourselves, what sort of people ought we to be? See, this is, an, is especially an important question for us if we have now repented, if we have put our faith in Christ, where we're turning away from sin to turn to Savior and to God our Father. And so Peter asks the question, and then he goes on to answer the question for us. That as we continue to wait and continue to remember, we should be people marked by holiness and godliness. Now, see, if you don't understand those two words, there's some important truth behind them. Because the word holiness contains the idea of being separated from something or really set apart for God. I mean, for example, the articles used in the temple were considered holy because they had been set apart for God's exclusive use. That's what made something holy in the eyes of God. And in this sense, they were different from the common things people used for their own possessions. And so really, this illustrates for us why holiness causes people to be different from the unbelievers around them. Because when a person receives the truth 
of the gospel and is born again, they are set apart for God's use. That is what it means to pursue holiness, that you are set apart for God's use, that you no longer live for yourself, but for the one who saved you. And then we see the word godliness. And godliness has to do with the direction of a person's life and their relationship and their connection to God. That God's plan is that those he calls and sets apart to himself would focus their attention and their affection toward him, where they draw close to him until the day that he takes them home. So let me tell you, church, holiness and godliness are two important parts of the Christian life that should not be separated. That in holiness, we are being set apart from the scoffers and the mockers who look to pursue their sin rather than their savior. And see, as we seek to live out godliness, we are pursuing the character of God and the heart of God. So let me tell you this morning what is, what is true, both in this text and all of the Bible, that how you live today matters. How you live today matters. And if you are someone who has believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is a life that should be set apart for him and him alone. And so just for a moment Let's go back to Peter's question in verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be? See, what we believe about the second advent of Christ should never be detached from our personal lives, but rather it should be firmly linked and near glued together. So see, the answer to the question is that we are those who wait upon the Lord, who pursue him, not just with our beliefs, but with our entire lives as we hold to the promise that he is coming again. And so remember, this is what Peter points us towards in the end of his text in verse 13 when he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, church, there is this truth and this difficulty that in time and in remembering, we are waiting. That we have many examples, many reflections of what is to come, but is not here yet. And so make no mistake, as we wait, we work. As we wait, we work. We work to remember and to look rightly at our Savior with our entire lives. And so as we come to a close this morning, both in our time together and in this year, I want to ask you a question that we've been asking throughout this entire series together that I really believe is an important life question for all of us. What am I focused on? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking to Christ alone in your life? Or is there something else or someone else that has taken your focus or your affection? Have you made something or or someone else the object 
of your worship? Or are you living in light of his return? So church, I encourage you, whatever your resolution that you have set already for tomorrow or for the next day or the next day or the next day or the next day, I encourage you to ask this question. What am I focused on? Because if you and I are called to be people who live in holiness and godliness, that our focus rightly should be on Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray.